Wellspring podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. If you have your Bibles, let's open them up this evening to Daniel chapter 11. Some of you, maybe you've missed a week or two, you're saying, still in chapter 11? (laughs) Just a lot there. As a matter of fact, the first 35 verses of chapter 11 chronicle some 400 plus consecutive years of Jewish history. And similar to what we saw back in chapter 9, some of you may recall in the middle of verse 26, we saw it jump centuries (laughs) and, and take us to the last week, this last seven years of human history. Verse 35 actually does the same thing here in chapter 11. It actually serves as a, what I'll refer to as a transitional verse because suddenly verse 35 leapfrogs over centuries again. As we see here, it says until the time of the end. And so why? Because the first 35 verses speak of Daniel's 69 weeks. But verse 35 also takes us into Daniel's 70th week. So between verse 35 and 36 is the time of the Gentiles as it is referred to also the church age. And as we studied before, Daniel's 70th week is the last, as I just previously said, seven years of human history as we know it, the time of the tribulation. Up to this point, the prophecy dealing with the Persians and the Grecian empires has been fulfilled with amazing precision. But that's just why I think Daniel jumps from Antiochus Epiphanes, where we were last week, the madman, as he was known by the Jews, jumps from there to the end times, end times which are yet to come. Antiochus Epiphanes was, as you realize a part of the first 69 weeks and as we said he was a forerunner a picture of the antichrist to come now we go to the 70th week where one even more and here's the term that we kind of emphasize from the bible describing antiochus last week one more contemptible um, more despicable more vile and Antiochus ever thought to be. And he was a pretty bad dude, right? One worse than all that comes on the scene. And of course, we're referring to Antichrist. Everything at this point, from verses 1 through 35, has, is history. Which is kind of nice, because in terms of translating and interpreting God's word, it's nice when you can point to history and draw from history and and come up with some rather fairly accurate translation, interpretation. However, from verse 36 on to the rest of this chapter, it's not history anymore, it's prophetic. Which means there's no history to draw from. That being said, as you might could imagine, and some of you well know, there is a wide variety of interpretation out there with regards to verses 36 through verse 45. 
But that being said, we're, we're, we're going we're gonna to forge ahead anyway, right? Okay. And we're going to allow the Lord to just speak to our hearts, encourage us, strengthen us. Amen? All right. Verse 36. The king will do as he pleases. Did you, you notice the leapfrog there? We immediately left Antiochus Epiphanes. He pretty much did as he pleased, but now we're talking about somebody else. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the God of gods. In other words, he's going to get in there and blaspheme God and say stuff that's going to shock even the most evil person. That's how bad it will be. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed, for what has been determined must take place. Just like Lucifer, who said, I will be like God, which caused him to get kicked out of heaven, right? Isaiah 14, 14. Let's us know that Lucifer just wanted to be like God, said, I will be like God, got cast out of heaven, and therefore became no longer Lucifer, but Satan, who is filled with Satan. The Antichrist is filled with Satan, does according to his own will, and will have no regard whatsoever for God's will. He will be totally self-centered and egomaniac. But I want you to just for a moment contrast that with Jesus who prayed. Not my will, but yours be done. Right? Matthew or and Luke and the other Gospels. Contrast Antichrist exalting and magnifying himself with Jesus who, although he was equal with God, humbled himself and made himself of no reputation. What a contrast. Contrasts all of that with ourselves. Let me say that again. Contrast all of that with ourselves struggling to get over ourselves. Antichrist will speak so powerfully, he'll inspire the entire world to turn against the true and living God, causing the world to rally around him. This magnetic individual will be a man of eloquence, persuasiveness, confidence, and defiance toward God. And by the way, let me just mention, now some of you are thinking, well, we've, we've covered this already in the other chapters, and yes, we have. And I just want to say, obviously, God wants to make sure we get it. <laughs> so he emphasizes this, this information, this scripture for us, the story of this person. But nevertheless, as it says here, when it says that, um, you know, until the time of wrath is completed, what that is saying to us, that time is not on his side. It is not on his side at all. God has a deadline for him. Aren't you glad for that? What has been prophesied in God's word will come to pass. Why? Because God's word is reliable, it is true, and it is accurate. Verse 37. He will show no regard for the gods of his ancestors, or for the one desired by women, 
nor will he regard any God, but will exalt himself above them all. The Antichrist will not regard the God of his ancestors, it says. The word, actually the word Elohim is being used here in this scripture. Here which can be translated also as gods or goddesses. In fact, it seems that he will oppose the worship of any God. It doesn't matter. Of any person because he will arrogantly magnify or exalt himself above the worship of all the gods that anybody had ever even considered to worship. Over all gods and all religions. While some scholars believe that the Antichrist will, and we've covered this, and by the way, because there's a wide variety of interpretation with these verses, uh, a couple times I will kind of share a couple of views that people have. Some scholars, as we have mentioned before, believe that the Antichrist will come out of the old revived Roman Empire. We've talked about that. Others suggest, because of this passage, that since the context of the chapter has been dealing with the king of the north, as well as the king of the south, we're not there anymore, but been dealing with that, it's possible, they suggest, then that the Antichrist will come out of the old Seleucid Empire which covered the region of Syria in modern-day Iraq. They point to passages like the one found in Isaiah, chapter 10, verse 5. Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger in whose hand is the club of my wrath. When the Lord has finished all his work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes. And then Isaiah 14, verse 25, I will crush the Assyrian in my land. On my mountains I will trample him down. His yoke will be taken from my people and his burden removed from their shoulders. And so he may be an Assyrian or possibly, some suggest, half Assyrian, half Jewish. He may be called the Assyrian because he is from the region or the fact that the Antichrist will help rebuild Babylon or possibly make it one of his headquarters. Again, various ideas. This is actually an interesting point, though, especially in light of the fact that the focus of the world has and is and will continue to have its eyes on this region, particularly because of a particular resource that is pretty abundant there. It's what the, um, the Beverly Hillbillies called <laughs> black gold. Remember that? <laughs> Oil. Again, it is reemphasized that the Antichrist will respect no God other than self. He will exalt himself above all gods as previously mentioned. He will attack all religions, all forms of worship, totally disrespecting all people in the process. In particular, he will attack the Jewish people and their God, who just happens to be the one true God. Amen? Antichrist will be his own God. And like Antichrist, people who are atheists today, while they would probably say to you, I, I, I am not a worshiper, I do not worship. You know what? They do. 
You know how they do? Because they are atheists and because they do not believe God, they worship the dumbest God of them all, themselves. <laughs> Amen? Think about it. I will worship only what I can understand and comprehend, they say. And in so saying, they worship their own intellects, which is anything but intelligent. <laughs> Verse 38. Instead of them, he will honor a God of fortresses, a God unknown to his ancestors. He will honor with gold and silver with precious stones and costly gifts. The Antichrist will reject all gods as we've been saying and including the one of his ancestors, however many that would have been, but will instead worship, it says, or honor the God of fortresses. He will honor this God with great wealth. What is the God of fortresses. What is intended by that? The word is from a Hebrew word which means fortresses, but also protectors, armed forces, and even munitions. The God of fortresses is the personification then of war. And the thought is this, he will regard no other God, but only what to him will be the God of war. He is all about war. The taking of fortresses, he will make his God. And he will worship this God above all as the means of his gaining world influence and gaining and weapons. And because of where we are in time, no doubt that will obviously include nuclear weapons. Don't you think? Do we not see this prevalent? attitude today in the world? I think we do. Initially he depended on his charisma when he first come on the scene at the beginning of the seven year tribulation he, com he, he depended on his charisma and his flattery and his talk of peace but now he begins to flex his military muscle and as we have said before beginning to show his true colors it could also be referring to the worship of himself, which he'll seek to establish throughout the world. Whatever the, the case, he will use his military power to destroy all who oppose or stand in his way. Apparently, the Antichrist will have the strongest military forces known to the world at that particular time, and people will know it. I think, therefore, nation after nation, when that is happening and taking place, will willingly give their allegiance and loyalty to him. The nations that refuse will be crushed. Antichrist will destroy all those who, who dare to challenge him. That's this egomaniac. The peoples of the world will be so impressed by his might that they according to Revelation 13, verse 4, will simply say, who is like the beast? We like to say and sing, who is like our God, amen? In that time, they will be saying, who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? On the other hand, those who support and willingly surrender 
to him will be rewarded, it says here, with political favor and gifts of large parcels of land, so on and so forth. Verse 40. At the time of the end, did I read verse 39? I didn't, did I? Let's go over 39. He will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of foreign God and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land of the price, which we just kind of talked about. The reference to a foreign God is most likely the same God referred to in verse 38, the God of military might, and the Antichrist will use that to dominate the world. Now, verse 40 and 41, at the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle, and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. Note that these events are said to, a, to definitely take place at the end time. Again, signifying for us that we are at the end of human history as we know it. We are at Daniel's 70th week, the tribulation period, which also means it is setting up and moving towards the last and final battle in human history, Armageddon. The, this, the verse says that the king of the south, a reference probably referring to a coalition of Egypt and other neighboring nations will engage him in battle, which seems to be a reference to the Antichrist. Now, not everyone thinks that the hymn here is referencing Antichrist. Some believe that it's referring to other people, other nations. To me, it seems to make sense that it's still talking about Antichrist, which since we've been talking about him since verse 36. So I think the hymn is referring to Antichrist, okay, rather than anybody else. So he will march out and wipe out the armies that come against him. Antichrist will. Then he will send troops, it says, to sweep through each of the rebellious nations, forcing them in subjection under his rule. The term here, chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships, can be uh, confusing for some because it's like, we don't use those anymore. <laughs> and I think it's really probably just representative of modern day counterparts. The, the cavalry and the chariots and the fleet of ships uh, representative of modern day, of their modern day counterparts. But then verse 41 tells us that he will turn around and invade the beautiful land. Keep in mind now, in the beginning of the seven years, he entered into a peace agreement with Israel, didn't he? And I think part of that agreement, he was kind of letting them know, I'll be your bodyguard. I will take care of you. I will watch over you. Halfway through, which seems to me is where we are at this point now, he turns around and sees an opportunity to go back on his word. Surprise, surprise, right? and break the peace agreement and attacks the people of Israel. He, 
Um, whatever the case, he will conquer many nations as a result of the uprising that we just read about. For some unknown reason, though, notice here the territories that were the ancient kingdoms of Edom, Moab, and Ammon, which are modern-day Jordan, will not be destroyed by his army. No explanation given, and no one really says a whole lot about it. I have a thought, and it's based on what we read in Revelation chapter 12, verse 14 where the enemy, our enemy, has been kicked out of heaven with all of his demons, and he's pretty upset, been kicked back to earth, no longer has um, the opportunity to go into the presence of God, and it lets us know, it says, and the woman, or the, the beast that goes after the woman, which is speaking of Israel, and God protects them as they are allowed to go hide and find protection in the wilderness. Many scholars suggest that that could be places such as Petra. Well, where is Petra? Happens to be in Jordan. So just a thought, maybe God just does that so that there actually is a place where he can send some of his people where they can be protected and kept from the evil one. Don't know. But he will conquer Egypt and gain control of the nations Enormous wealth as well as the wealth of, and here's the, co the, the coalition I referred to earlier with Egypt, with probably like Libya and Ethiopia. There are some scholars who suggest that this battle is the battle that Ezekiel talks about in 38 and 39. Again, they mentioned that perhaps this battle that they're talking, that's taking place mid-tribulation period, is the one that's known as Gog and Magog again predicted in Ezekiel 38 and 39, and that battle will take place, as they're saying, in the middle of the tribulation. The nation from the north, in their thinking, isn't Syria, nor is it Antichrist, but Russia. And many scholars think that Russia is a big, big time player in, in the end time stuff. Those who disagree, however, with that stance, suggest the battle could, could not have possibly taken place in the middle of the tribulation because of the immense of the battle and they look at the one in Armageddon, just physically impossible to do two big battles like that with only like three, three and a half years in between. So they suggest that this battle, referred to as Gog and Magog, perhaps could take place just previous to the tribulation period. Verse 42. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt with the Libyans and Cushites in submission. This ruler is set on conquering the Middle East and he is an enemy of all people, not just Israel. The mention of Libya designates the area in North Africa west of Egypt that includes modern-day Libya, and the Kushites was the name of an area roughly equivalent to modern-day Ethiopia, and perhaps even including the Sudan. 
All the riches of Egypt may include, once again, might be referring to oil resources of the Middle East. As you can imagine, oil will be a big-time commodity. And it is now, right? But in time of war and battle, big-time commodity. Verse 44, But reports from the east and the north will alarm him, and he will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. At this point, Antichrist is troubled because out of the east and the north, he hears some reports. A growing descent of opposition towards him is on the rise. Imagine that. On the rise among many nations during the last three and a half years of the tribulation, the last three and a half years of his rule. Nations in the east and the north will begin to mobilize to march out against Antichrist and his forces. Revelation chapter 9 gives us some insight into at least part of those reports, letting us know that the king of the east is coming with an army of 200 million men. Think with me for a moment when John is getting this from Jesus in the time of Revelation. As he's writing, John may have thought, man, I think I heard that wrong. <laughs> it would have been unheard of in his day, right? But in the 1960s, Radio Peking announced that China had established a militia of 200 million men. Suddenly, all those who were studying prophecy began to take notice. Here we see possibly not only the Russians and possibly not only the Arabs, maybe in an alliance with Russia, coming against the Antichrist, but China coming from the east. No wonder Antichrist is troubled. He sees his world empire being threatened on the verge of collapsing. And you know what? It is. <laughs> Interestingly, Scripture lets us know that this action, this, is what, this really cracks me up, because this is who our enemy is, the father of lies, the deceiver that he is. Scripture lets us know that this action that is coming from the east and the north is being instigated by Satan himself. He has instigated that these armies from the east and north come march down on his boy. Is basically what this is about. His boy meaning the Antichrist. Furious that anyone would dare oppose him. Talk about arrogance, his power and his authority. Blinded by the lust for power, this evil dictator, also being influenced by Satan, will arrogantly send his forces out against the invaders with the intent 
thinking and believing that he will completely obliterate them. Antichrist will meet these attacking forces in Israel and make his headquarters. It says he'll pitch his royal tents. Again, terminology for modern day. I mean, armies today still use tents, right? Between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. Between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. Seas is referring to the two bodies of water on either side of Israel, which would obviously is going to, one of them is going to be the Mediterranean Sea, and I believe the other is referring to the Dead Sea on the east. The beautiful holy mountain obviously is Mount Zion, where the temple stood. Some see this as a reference of Antichrist establishing his headquarters, actually, at the temple in Jerusalem. However, Revelation 16, verse 16, indicates more specifically that the Valley of Megiddo will be the setting of this final conflict where the Battle of Armageddon takes place. Both armies under the influence of the devil and his demons will not be marching out for justice or for a righteous cause to free people. Rather, they will be marching completely and totally for selfish purposes, for the right to dominate the world and subject its citizens to the will of its government and its rulers. But notice how chapter 11 ends. Yet he will come to his end. And no one will help him. I should hope not. <laughs> At this point, try to imagine the scene described for us here in Daniel 11 by taking in some of what we find in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. It says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. With justice, he judges and makes war. Verse 14, the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Then I saw, this is verse 19 and 20, then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together. Notice this now, no longer to make war with each other. <laughs> they're going to group up and think they're going to gather fight the rider on the white horse gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. Verse 20, but the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. 
As I read that and was preparing this, I was reminded of a time when I was 17 years old, had gone to an auto parts store, and while I was inside the auto parts store, I don't know if I've ever shared this, perhaps, as I was in the auto parts store buying some parts for my 56 Chevy that I was so proud of, you know, Two gangs emerged right outside the store and started fighting one another. And it was, it was pretty horrible. I mean, tie irons, and there was no guns. At least I didn't see any guns, didn't hear any guns going off, but they were just beating each other. One guy was practically unconscious, just getting beat on the head. And then after a little bit, the police showed up. To my amazement, those two gangs that were fighting one another joined up and together started fighting the police. It's kind of what we have going on here in Revelation. All evil will have reached its peak in these two massive armies. For this reason, the Lord God of the universe will bring human history to a Simply speak and the Antichrist and all that is evil and everything that is evil and everyone that is evil will be done. <laughs> it will be the Lord's spoken word and the glory and splendor of his holy presence that will strike the beast, bringing the Antichrist down. All of this lets us know that the ungodly kingdoms of this world will not, do not endure. They don't have the last word, nor do they have the final say. In fact, in this moment, they don't even have a prayer. <laughs> and the people of God ultimately delivered. Hallelujah. As I see it, the danger for us is because this is in the future. We are tempted to be lax with our faith, devotion, surrender, and commitment today. Was talking with someone before the service, and I was asked, Do you think we're in the last days? And I do. And I also said that, but I realize that every generation that has ever lived since Jesus ascended thought so. But they weren't wrong. And the word I was trying to remember and think of is the word imminent. His return has always been imminent. But I'm thinking, perhaps you're thinking, but no one has seen what the world is seeing today on a worldwide scale. And I think we are in the last days. And I think that this is no time to, allowing, to allow our hearts to be cooled toward the things of God. Amen. Would you agree? Yes. Please don't fall into the trap of thinking, hey, I've got time. I pray that God will help us have and maintain a sense of urgency. You agree? Yes. These are exciting days that we live in. May we make the most of each day.
May we make each day count for Christ. Father, we thank you so much that we belong to you. Thank you for this letter, this book, this message that you have left us that encourages, strengthens, shows us truth, sets us free, and lays out for us a plan that we can follow because we can trust you, because you are for us. And God, we want to live our lives in such a way that no one would ever doubt that we are for you. Help us, Lord, to maintain and have and maintain a sense of urgency. I know that every generation that has ever lived has believed that they were in the last days. I believe we are in the last days because your return is imminent, because the enemy is on the move, but behind the scenes, so are you. And the move I think you're doing these days, Lord, is moving in the hearts of your people to to break up the fallow ground to get us to get over ourselves to have a greater hunger and desire for you God rather than this world to long to bring you pleasure instead of ourselves I think this is the work Lord that you are doing may we let you may we find that place of surrender and stay there for the rest of our days, living for you with the power of your spirit that you supply. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com.